All right, head on to your places if you're with me. Take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 4. It's good to be back. I had to miss last Sunday night. I missed being here. I had a friend, he would say it this way, when you miss, you miss. And I definitely missed being with you. I had a wonderful opportunity last Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, to be part of an ordination council, which is in ministry an opportunity to sit down with other pastors and to meet with somebody who is interested in being a pastor and ask them lots of questions and and make sure that they understand God's Word and make sure that they understand what they think and what they believe about things, because it's important to know what you believe and why you believe it. Amen? And uh, I had a good opportunity with them, and I wasn't expecting to have to be there last Sunday night. And they, at the end of the time Saturday, they said, well, you are going to be here Sunday night, right? Because we have to give them a certificate and we all have to do... I said, oh, okay. And they didn't explain that very well up front, but we got it all worked out. And so I'm thankful for Josh to be able to step in. Looking forward to getting back to our study in Genesis as we think about foundations, biblical foundations. And uh, we're going to look a little bit at the story of Cain and Abel tonight. It's a pretty well-known story. Uh, People even who don't know a whole lot about uh, the Bible have often heard of Cain and Abel, and I hope that that'll be uh, something as we think about specifically tonight, the issue of death. Why is there death? Because as we uh, read in Genesis chapter 4, we come to the very first human death in Scripture, the death of Abel. Very sad thing, of course, as he was uh, put to death or murdered by his brother Cain. And so... As we look at this tonight, I want us to consider why death, uh, because death is one of those things I I don't think anybody looks forward to, I don't think anybody um, desires for the most part, and yet is very certain, as people will often say, there's only two things in life that are certain, and that's death and taxes, and uh, we know that those things are true, and so we want to look at death tonight and understand where it came from why it exists, and the purpose of it, uh, because it does fit into the whole story of Christ and His work of redemption and God's plan for humanity, even though we might initially think this is a really awful thing and why does this even exist, and yet it's something that we all have to face. So let's take a few moments and I'll begin uh, reading in Genesis 4, verse 1. It says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, before I read on, I just want to make a point here, because if you go back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised uh, this woman after she, that she and uh, Adam had sinned, after Eve and Adam had sinned, that he said that she would be... Um, Let's see, she would experience pain in sorrow-bearing. Here it is, verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. And yet, if you go back just a couple of verses here, let's see, verse number 15, I'm sorry, one verse, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So let me just explain what this is talking about. God had told Eve that there would be pain when she gave birth. And all the ladies who have given birth know that that is true. That's 
part of the curse, unfortunately, because of sin. And yet, God had promised in verse 15 that the seed of the woman, so a descendant from woman, would bruise the head of the serpent. The serpent referring to and, and being Satan personified here in this passage of Scripture. And so, if the offspring of woman was going to bruise the head of the serpent, it makes sense then in chapter 4 and verse 1 when Eve has her first child by the name of Cain that she says, here it is. This is the offspring that I was promised by God and here is the one who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. That's why she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. In the English translation, it's a little difficult as you translate Hebrew to English, but the idea really here is, I've gotten a man, the Lord, as if she thought this was the promised one. Now, we know that Cain was not Jesus. We know that he was not the promised one. Jesus didn't come till much, much later, but he was born of a woman, right? He was born to the Virgin Mary. But I think it's interesting to think that here's Eve thinking, all right, I had this child. This must be to answer to the promise and yet God's plan had much more time involved in it before it would be fulfilled so she gives birth to Cain and then in verse 2 of chapter 4 it says and she again bare his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground so Cain's a farmer Abel is a shepherd and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So often if you think of the story of Cain and Abel, we think, well, Abel brought the good sacrifice, Cain brought the bad sacrifice, and so... Uh, Cain was judged because he brought the bad sacrifice. But that's not entirely correct, is it, as you read the passage of Scripture? Yes, God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, and he was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but God did not bring judgment on Cain initially because he brought a different sacrifice, did he? Notice the verses here. It says that Cain brought his offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, he brought his offering of the flock. And all it says here is that the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering, and that with Cain's offering, he had not respect. In other words, God is very specific about how he is to be worshipped. God has a specific plan how we are to worship him. The Bible says over in the New Testament that when we worship him, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's not just, hey, you know, we can just make it up and do whatever we want. If he's truly God, we have to worship him the way that he desires to be worshipped. This doesn't even totally translate into our modern age because here in America we don't have a king, um, even though sometimes people think they're kings and all that stuff. But in the old days when there was a king in a land, you had to approach that king a certain way. You had to come when he told you you could come. In many cases, you had to be invited to come before the king. You couldn't just come in whenever you pleased. And when you did come before the king, you had to come in a certain way, very humble, and, and, uh, and you only sp spoke if you were spoken to and all those kinds of things. 
Well, our Heavenly Father is also the King of the universe. And so He has a specific way in which we are to approach Him and that we are to worship Him. And God is making this clear. Again, He didn't bring judgment immediately on Cain because Cain brought the wrong sacrifice. Rather, He does not have respect and because Cain does not like it that God doesn't like His sacrifice, Cain is upset with God because God doesn't accept His sacrifice. I think it's very important for us to note this, that when we come to God, we have a responsibility to come to God the way He asks us to come to Him. Because He is God, and we are not. So when we come to God, we need to be careful that we are coming in the way that God has prescribed for us to come. And it's not okay to just come however we want and just assume that, well, God's going to take that. No, He's God, and, and we are not. But God doesn't immediately bring judgment upon Cain because of this. And Cain, when God does not accept his offering, Cain has the wrong response. He gets mad. He's upset with God because God doesn't accept his sacrifice. Notice what the Lord says in verse 6. And the Lord said to Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you mad? Why are you upset? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? In other words, God's giving Cain a chance to do right here. God is not just this angry ogre in the sky that the first time Cain comes and brings the wrong sacrifice, that God just says, all right, I'm done with you, Cain. No, God says, if you bring the right sacrifice, you'll be accepted. But notice God also says, if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him so he's given him a choice Cain you can do things my way and if you do I'll bless you for it but Cain if you do things the wrong way if you continue to go your own way and choose your own thing there, there is judgment for that so at this point I would say things aren't too bad yes Cain is upset but God's given him an opportunity to get right but in verse 8 is where we see a very sad record where it says, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. You say, what happened there in the field? What well, we don't have fully recorded for us. Obviously, Cain was angry. We know that going into it. He goes and he talks with his brother Abel. Assuming based on what God has said here, if, if Cain would have just asked Abel for a sheep, one of his lambs, he could have taken that and sacrificed it to God as, as God wanted him to do, and God would have accepted his sacrifice, and everything would have been just fine. And yet, somehow, someway, Cain gets upset with his brother. And again, had his brother done anything wrong? No. But Cain then kills him. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And Cain says, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm sure you've probably heard that statement at some point in your life. <laughs> I, I know I have more than once. Well, I'm not my brother's keeper. Am I? You know, people use that as sort of their excuse. Like, I have no responsibility for this. Now, in one sense, Cain was not responsible for watching out for what his brother did every day. 
But Cain knew exactly where his brother was because Cain was the one who had put him there. So this question is, is not a good question at all, and it's almost, in a sense, like he's trying to shed his responsibility or somehow misdirect God and put God in another direction. Yet God knows exactly what's going on. That's why God says to him, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. God knew exactly what had happened to Abel. God knew exactly where Abel was. You think about this, again, this first death. Cain kills Abel. Have you ever wondered, like, well, what happened to Abel? Like, what did he do to deserve this? Well, the Bible doesn't say that he deserved anything. He didn't deserve this for any reason, that his brother would be angry and kill him. And yet he did. So here we have the first death recorded in Scripture. However, we do know that God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And so we can assume then, based on our understanding of Scripture, that Abel is with the Lord. Cain, however, God pronounces a curse against him, and he says in verse 11, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand? When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. The fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. God pronounces this great curse against Cain. And I think most people would agree he deserved it. He killed his own brother. When all he had to do was ask him for a sheep and he could have had it. I want you to notice in verses 13, 14, and 15 that even though Cain deserved great judgment and he was cursed, that God's mercy is still evident towards Cain. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass, here's Cain making a prophecy, that every one that findeth me shall slay me. I find that a little funny, and maybe it sounded a little bit different when Cain said it, but, you know, it's like, well, how many times can they kill you, Cain? You know, like, he says, everyone that finds me is going to slay me. Obviously, we assume that he's saying, anybody that comes across me is going to want to kill me because I've been cursed. But look what God says in verse 15. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. So what happened here? Is God marking Cain because God is being mean to Cain? No, God is marking Cain to protect Cain. Isn't that interesting? God is protecting someone who murdered his brother. God is merciful, long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So while we read of this death, and it's a very awful thing, and while we read of this punishment, this curse, also an awful thing, we still see God's mercy, God's work in this story. 
You can keep reading here. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bare Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. By the way, if you're thinking, Enoch, wasn't he a good guy? This is not the Enoch you're thinking of. This is a different Enoch. There were two guys with the same name. And it says, And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. Here in chapter 4, we're going to read of two deaths recorded, both murders. The first is Abel. The second one is one that, that Lamech kills. Notice. And Lamech took unto him two wives. By the way, the first example of recorded for us in Scripture of, of a man having more than one wife. Back to a previous point made a few weeks ago, God created man and woman to be together and not, he didn't create polygamy. That's not how God intended it to be. And yet, Lamech has decided that that would be a good idea. We notice Lamech is a man who lives for his personal enjoyment and fulfillment. It says here, he took to him two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel. And he was the father of such as dwell in tents and, have, and such as have cattle. So he helped to, he was a herdsman, right? And he knew how to breed cattle. And it says, and his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And organ. Interesting, isn't it? So here's Lamech. He's, he, his sons go on to become, uh, one is a great herdsman, another one is a great musician. Isn't that interesting to think about the first guy that invented like the harp here and, and the organ and he's making these instruments. I mean, what an incredible mind he must have had to, to make these instruments having not seen any other example of instruments. I, I just think that's interesting. It says, And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain. So this was his other wife. Who was Tubal-Cain? He was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. So he's a guy that figures out how to work with metals and how to make beautiful things out of metal. Probably also making weapons out of metal as well and all kinds of things. So this man Lamech is a man who kind of has, has it all. You know, his sons are... Great men in their day, they're men who invent great things. I mean, you think about the market, right? We understand a little bit about markets and economies and things like that. If you're the first guy to market with brass and other metalworking, there's pro you're probably going to make a lot of money, probably have a lot of influence. If you're the first guy inventing an instrument and, and, and having music this way, there's probably a great market for what you're doing. I mean, these guys are on the, the cutting edge, so to speak, of technology and of the arts and culture of their time. But notice what happens. It says, And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama, and Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. He just brings his wives in one day and says, Yeah, I killed this guy. But notice what he says in verse 24. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. I believe we really see Lamech's pride in this statement. That he's saying, well, if God 
would avenge him Cain sevenfold, then God will avenge me seventy and sevenfold. This is quite arrogant here. Cain, if you notice, doesn't come to God and say, God, please avenge me sevenfold. Cain comes to God and says, God, this punishment is too great for me to bear. Lamech, on the other hand, he's heard the story of Cain because he's several generations down by now. And he goes, well, God did that for him. God ought to do this for me. It is wrong to assume that God is going to give you some special benefit of the doubt over everybody else. Because he's God. He does exactly what he pleases and the way he, he chooses to do it. Now, he is merciful. He is loving. He is kind and all of those things. But Lamech is presuming upon God. He's assuming God's going to just treat him much better than God would treat Cain, even though Lamech has committed the same sin that Cain committed. So this line coming down from Cain, this is not a, not a good group of people. And then it says in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. That name means appointed. You see that described here. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Again, we see God's plan go forward, right? I mean, if you think about it, God says to Eve, I'm going to give you a, a, your offspring, and one day he'll bruise the head of the serpent. So she has two sons, her first son Cain. She thinks, this must be the one. But then that one kills her second son. God curses Cain, but is God's plan somehow thwarted? Did God sit up there in heaven and wring his hands and say, oh no, what, what am I going to do now? No, God clearly still had a plan. He's still accomplishing his purpose. And so he gives Eve Seth. Adam and Eve have Seth, their third son. And Eve recognizes that God is still going to fulfill his plan. It's very important, I think, for us to understand that. Again, we're going to focus on death tonight, but just all this by way of introduction. As we think about God and his work, we don't always understand how God's working. We don't always understand God's time frame in how he works. And sometimes we may get to places in our life where it looks like there's no way out. You know, Eve's had two sons, thinking one's the son of promise. He kills the other one. Now he's not. What do I do now? God still makes a way. God always has a way forward. God is never stuck. God never says, oops. Right? God never gets in a situation where he doesn't know how to get out of the situation because God's plans went way back before the situation ever came to be in the first place. So in your life, as you face those difficulties along the way, as you think like, man, everything seems messed up. Nothing seems to be working. I, I really find myself in a place of struggle. Continue to follow God. Continue to trust God and know that God will still fulfill his promise. God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. So then it says, verse 26, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This statement at the end of chapter 4 is very important because it's reminding us that now this is the line, and these are the ones that are following after God. Now, were they all perfect? No, you'll read about plenty more sinners if you keep reading through your Bible. And yet, these were the descendants of Seth were those who were calling out to God. So, as we think through this idea of death, I want us to 
make a couple of, I, I want to make a couple of statements here. We see the effects of, fall, of the fall of the sin of Adam and Eve already taking place on mankind. We see these two murders mentioned here in this chapter, chapter 4. We notice that God continues to accomplish His plan. We notice that God is still merciful. And as you keep reading down through this line, you, you get into chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, we begin to read about a man by the name of Noah. Now, during this whole progression of time, th there's a lot of years going by here. Now, my math is sometimes questionable, but I did my best to add up the years here that are listed for us in chapter 5. Because if you notice, it'll say, you know, this Adam, it says he lived 130 years, verse 3, and then he had a son, and his son's name was Seth. And then Seth lived 105 years, and he had Enos. And then it says, and Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And it's going through this list here. I added up 1,651 years. Now, when you get to adding up genealogies, it can be a little tricky. Occasionally, in genealogies, they would um, skip a generation and, and mention a grandson and different things like that. But suffice it to say, this is a really long time here. And so as this time is going down, the, the sin is getting worse, things are getting I wanted to say batter and batter, and I thought that is just terrible grammar, so I just had to bite my tongue there. But you get to chapter 6, and things are really falling apart. People are doing wicked things. People are doing whatever they wanted to do. You see in verse 13 of chapter 6, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh is before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. People are taking other people's lives. People are taking advantage of others. People are living, it says in verse 5, also of chapter 6, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you imagine that? People saying, all I want to do all day is evil. Whatever I can dream up that's evil to do, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what God says about these people, that every imagination of the thoughts of their hearts, their, of, the, of their heart was only evil continually. So, back to our question, why death? I wanted us to go through kind of by way of introduction and, and kind of map out some of the first few years and some of the struggles and some of the sin along the way. So why death? Well, look back at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. Genesis 2 verse 17 the Bible says this, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God had made a promise with them. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Now that's not the only God pr promise that God made with his people. But this was a promise that God had made. And God is faithful. God always keeps his promises. And this is exactly the tree than Adam and Eve ate from. We know this very simply, that God cannot be around sin. God is completely separate from sin because God is holy. That's one of his attributes or character qualities. 
God did what he promised to do. The penalty of sin is death. That's what he tells them here. Thou shalt surely die. But this penalty is removed then through salvation in Jesus Christ. Think about this. Was there any death before the fall? I mean, any death at all. According to God's word, there's no death before the fall. Not even an animal. The, the first animals were sacrificed after the sin, after the fall. So there's no death at all before the fall. As far as we can understand from Scripture, even the Bible says that they weren't even eating meat until later on. So they, they were just eating vegetables and fruits. They're in the Garden of Eden. They had everything that they needed from that. So there's no death before the fall. This is an important point. Back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, talking about origins, where we came from, and why we're here. Because if you take a, uh, the mindset or the, the belief that everything came about through by chance or that over millions of years things evolved to the place where we are today, you have to, by definition, say that there was death in that process. Because the process of evolution, at least as we are explained to by many scientists today, is that it's through the survival of the fittest. That those that survived, they went on and they bred, and so there were changes going forward over many, many, many years. Now the problem with that theologically is that then you would have death before the fall. Because according to, again, those scientists, that perspective, they would say that man did not evolve until much later in the process. So if you had death before the fall, this then takes away death as the punishment for sin. Now death is just happening just because. There's no reason for it other than it exists for the advancement of whatever creature is evolving to the next form along the way. So that's just an interesting thing to think about theologically because if you were asked that question, well, how do you know which is which? This is one interesting argument. Was there death before the fall? If you say yes, you're contradicting what the Bible says because the Bible says there's no death before the fall. If you say no, then you're contradicting the evolutionist position that says things came to pass over many, many, many years. And therefore, of course, there was death along the way as one creature died off and another one evolved in its place and so on and so forth. So we understand that there's death because God can't be around sin, because God made this command, because they broke God's law and God kept his promise as he said he would. But as we saw then, God shows mercy to Cain. God shows his plan still taking place through Seth. So what do we do about death then? Well, we understand from Scripture that death will one day be destroyed. And that's a good thing. This is over in the New Testament, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56 says it very simply. Let me go back and I'll read verse number 54. I'll start there. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go back and read also verse 26, because it states it very simply. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Have you ever thought of death as an enemy? The Bible says it is. And I think most people practically would agree that it is, because people do a lot to fight off death, don't they? Uh, we do lots of things, hopefully, uh, to make choices about what we eat, about how we exercise, about what we do, because we don't want to die. Death is an enemy. The Bible says so. But Bible, the Bible also teaches that this enemy will be destroyed. Another passage that speaks to this as well is Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. It says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So God cast death into the lake of fire. We don't think of it, death is like an object that could be cast into the lake of fire, and yet... God says he's going to take death and put it in the lake of fire. God cannot be around sin, but God sent death as a result of sin because he loved us so much. So why death? Well, it's because of who God is. But also, it's not necessarily all a bad thing. Yes, it is a curse. Yes, it separates us from God. Yes, it is a very bad thing that we think about. And yet, God doesn't mean this to us, I would say, for evil. Rather, he means it to us for good. So here's where we kind of got to think a little bit. Death? Good? How is death good? In what way is death good? Well, imagine living in a sinful state for eternity separated from God. The, the curse of physical death provides a way for God to redeem man back to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. All right, we're starting to get a little bit deep here. That's okay. Deep can be good. Go over to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. It won't help you, but in mine it's page 304, unless you have the exact same <laughs> style of Bible that I have. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's a great verse. He says, we see this Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God in human flesh. He was made a little lower than the angels. When did he do that? When he came down from heaven, when he was born in that manger. We talk about that. We're going to celebrate that here in just a few weeks. Hard to believe. Here we are at another Christmas time, but it's coming. Jesus came. He was born. He grew up. According to the Bible, he lived a perfect life and he died for our sin. It says that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every 
man. This really is the basic message of true Christianity. That man, through their sin, through his sin, man forfeited his special position of relationship with God. And as a result, God placed upon him the curse of death so that he could be redeemed back to God. Because God didn't want to leave you in your sin. God knew that the consequences of your choices are not what you really wanted to have to bear. I think that's one of the big struggles that people have with giving their life to God or not. Well, do I really want to live with the consequences of my choices? Is it better for me to do whatever I want to do or do what some other person tells me to do? Or is it better for me to do what God tells me to do? And that really comes back to what you believe foundationally. Because if you believe foundationally that God made you, if you believe foundationally that God is in charge, if you believe foundationally that this truly is God's word and not just a bunch of made-up things, then to be consistent with that, it's also true then, I ought to behave in the way that God tells me to. But the problem is, as we know from Adam and Eve, from Cain and Abel, from Lamech and many others, that we have all broken God's law. And therefore, because God cannot be around sin, we all are under the curse that is death. And yet God doesn't want to leave us there with that curse because God loved us enough, so he sends his son, Jesus Christ, who would, as Hebrews 2.9 says, that he would taste death for us. In other words, he would die in our place. Here's the thing, and again, if we're following what the Bible says, if we follow the belief of Scripture that God created it all, that God put the plan in place, that mankind broke God's law, but then yet God still fulfills His plan by redeeming man through His Savior, Jesus Christ, then that's a wonderful thing. On the other hand, if we believe that everything came by chance, that if things just came through through survival of the fittest, this is a process of death, struggle, cruelty, brutality, and ruthlessness. If that's truly the way I should live, then it ought to be my focus not to help you, but if I'm going to help you, it's only for my own purposes. Rather, it'd be I, I ought to live to try to push everybody else down so that I can be the fittest and survive. Now, fortunately, I'm taller and bigger than a lot of you, so, you know, maybe I'd have a better shot. Now, that'd be really backwards and selfish and bad way to live, isn't it? Rather, I would say an ideal society would be a society that lifts up those who are downtrodden, that protects those who are weak, that helps those who maybe we would say are less fortunate than others. You see, that whole idea of caring for somebody that's weaker than yourself or helping somebody that can't help themselves or protecting somebody who is weak is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in God's work through us and, and God's plan for us. It's rooted in God's plan even of creating the world and making us to have a relationship with Him. And it flies directly in the face of those who say, well, this all just came about by chance. Here's another reiteration of why death over in the New Testament. We've already seen it in the Old Testament. But look at Romans 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, there it is, so that death, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Have you ever heard the statement, well, it was Adam's fault. Okay, but he's also said, we've all sinned as well. Okay. I remember having those conversations. I still have those conversations sometimes with my kids as they're growing up now. Man, Dad, it's not fair. If I was there, I wouldn't have done like Adam did. You know, I don't know if that's ever been tempting for you to say. Why did Adam and Eve have to mess it up for the rest of us? Well, that's a pretty kind of arrogant statement, isn't it? That we would have somehow done better than they did. Well, that's kind of our natural tendency, isn't it? To think higher of ourselves than we probably should have. This verse flies in the face of that. It's saying, no, all have sin. And because of that, we all deserve death. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 then says, For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Christ, when he died in our place, when he shed his blood on our behalf, he gave us remission for our sin. God instituted death and bloodshed. Not because God hated us, but rather because God loved us. And he loved us too much to leave us where we were in our sin. And so by allowing death, he was faithful to his character. He kept his promise. And he was also able to then demonstrate his great love to us by sending his own son, who was put to death, so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have eternal life. But if death and bloodshed existed before Adam sinned, then the basis for the atonement is destroyed. I thought these were some interesting statements. We're almost done tonight, but um, by some, by two leading atheists, these are people that by their own admission would say, we don't believe in God. Maybe you may know somebody like this. I was talking to a guy like this just, just recently. I have no hatred in my heart towards them. Rather, I, have, I, I feel love towards them. Like, I want to help this guy. I want, I want him to understand. But I thought these statements were very interesting because they make some statements that I, I think that some might not expect. This is uh, by Richard Bozerth. He wrote in... Uh, an article called The Meaning of Evolution. This was in the American Atheist magazine back in 1978. He said, Christianity is, it must be, totally committed to the special creation as described in Genesis. And Christianity must fight with its full might, fair or foul, against the theory of evolution. It becomes clear now that the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit that he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into a life of constant sin, terminated by death, 
what purpose is there to Christianity? None. Now, you say, well, then how is he an atheist and you're not? Well, I, I would tell you he's at least being honest to the point to say, if you're a Christian, then you must believe these things. Because if you don't, then there's no point in being a Christian. Now, he's denying it. We understand that. And that's his right to do so. Because we must accept God's word ultimately by faith. We understand that. The Bible says by faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by him. We understand these things, yes, by faith. But that's not to say that there's no scientific evidence to back it up or no logical uh, reason for this. In fact, here's a man who denies all of it. And yet he says, logically, if you are going to believe what the Bible says, then you must accept this as true. Here's another one from... I'm not going to pronounce his name right. It's French, uh, Jacques Monod. This was in an interview titled The Secret of Life that he gave. And he said, selection, talking about natural selection, is the blindest and most cruel way of evolving new species and more and more complex and refined organisms. The struggle for life and the elimination of the weakest is a horrible process against which our whole modern ethic revolts. An ideal society is a non-selective society. It is one where the weak are protected, which is exactly the reverse of the so-called natural law. He said, I am surprised that a Christian would defend the idea that this is the process which God more or less set up in order to have evolution. He said, no Adam and Eve means no need for a savior. And it also means that the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of unambiguous literal truth. It is completely unreliable because it all begins with a myth and builds on that as a basis. No fall of man means no need for atonement and no need for a redeemer. It's quite a statement. Very, very interesting uh, of what this man thinks that he's saying... If you don't believe this, if you don't believe God's account of the creation and the fall and all of this struggle, then the whole point of Jesus and redemption and forgiveness and the love of God and all of that really doesn't matter. Foundations are very important. As we talk about where we come from and why we're here, it helps us to understand, I think, the importance then of the whole rest of Scripture. And the importance of studying God's Word and learning and growing as we do that. And as we continue to think about these things, I know a lot more could be said about this. But I hope tonight you at least maybe have maybe some new questions in your mind or some new things to think about. Hopefully some answers along the way as well. And understand why is there death. Yes, it is punishment. But it's also something that God then used as a means to bring His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we might have eternal life and an eternal relationship with Him. Father, help us as we consider Your truth in Your Word. Lord, give us clarity of mind and understanding. Lord, we don't want to accept this blindly. I don't think we have to. Lord, it is good to understand what You've said to us in Your Word. Lord, help us as we go about this week as 
Maybe some may interact with those or maybe even be dealing with things in their own lives that may have them thinking about death or the struggle that it is. Lord, while it is a sad and sorrowful thing, I'm thankful in your word in the Bible you've also said that those that have trusted in you and have their hope in Christ when they face death, they don't sorrow as those that have no hope because they can trust in Jesus. They can trust in their eternal life and home in heaven with you. Lord, we love you. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.